Turn with me to 2 Timothy. We have been teaching through the pastoral epistles, line upon line. I really enjoy this. It's fun. I may just start turning my Wednesday nights into, let's tackle the next epistle and go through it line upon line. It's, it's a fun challenge for me. I haven't ever done it till this series, and now I'm enjoying it so much. This may just be how we do Wednesday nights until the Lord steers us elsewise. So we, I think with the video last week being out of town, I pre-recorded a message on 2 Timothy chapter 1. I didn't realize we'd finish 1 Timothy, but we wanted to move into 2 Timothy, and our purpose behind all of this is that the pastoral epistles kind of pull back the curtain to reveal to the church what pastoring looks like from behind. One of the things we've seen over and over again with Timothy is that he was an insecure man and needed a lot of encouragement. And you have to understand that there is no perfect pastor or minister. They all fight private battles that have to be resolved. So they're often leading. And when they're done leading for the end of the day, they have to go into their tent or their house and they've got to talk with God themselves. They need encouragement themselves. They need help themselves. I, that's probably a worthwhile lesson for all of us. I was, um, of course, last week at a conference with my pastor and I get to be around a lot of my preaching buddies. Some of them are men I count as fathers in the faith, and some of them are big brothers in the faith, and then others are equals, and then there are a few guys that look to me as a big brother. But we all get to polish each other and provoke each other and hold each other accountable. And um, I was having uh, breakfast with one of my buddies, and he, he's like a big brother to me. And uh, he said, you know, I respect you, Pastor Chris, and you've helped me in many ways, but he said, I think I have a grace in my life that can help you in an area. And I thought, Lord God, here we go. Because I, I could feel the anointing begin to deal with me. And I'm like, Ugh. and he wasn't trying to be corrective, but he, he could see something in my life. And, and with him, there's no beating around the bush and no dark sayings. And so I, it really Brett, it brought me back to being in Pastor Vaughn's office where you just got to sit there Get down in your spirit, man, and just say, here it comes. <laughs> Let's just deal with it. Let's just be a big boy. Let's be corrected. Let's just hear what he has to say. And, and really, he wasn't rude. He wasn't unruly. And he really didn't call anything out, but he was right. There's a grace on his life for, for, to fix an area in my life. And he and I have talked about this. Some, some private issues, some insecurities on my part, some, some hurt in my life. And we just start talking about it. And it's in those moments I learn you don't hide anything. There's no point in hiding anything because he's a brother. He loves me dearly. He's a Holy Ghost man of God. I would trust him with you guys. I trust him with my own wife and children. And I, I, I'm thankful through Pastor Vaughn. Pastor Vaughn discipled us in private with hammers. It's just how it was. He wasn't as punchy as I am from the pulpit, but in the hammer, he just, I mean, the private, he just throw a hammer at you. If, if you could handle it, and not many folks could, so I learned under Pastor Vaughn as a 19, 20, 21-year-old, 22-year-old up until he passed away, uh, if you went to talk to him, you were better off being as honest as humanly possible, not acting like you had your junk together because nobody does, and just be raw. And so I, I felt sit down, and my friend is doing his thing, and there's that grace like, I know this. This is me to be helped. But as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, Lord, why is this happening? <laughs> and you know, because... Uh, why can't we just keep this? Why can't we talk about my botany book? Why can't we talk about my kids? Why we got to do this right here at Bob Evans? <laughs> but I know the anointing. 
And, and I had, I don't want to say it was the Lord, though. The impression was there. I was like, Lord, why are we dealing with this again? And the, the image I had in my heart was, this is God, in a sense, saying, this is me investing in you so you can finish your race. And then the picture I saw was like a NASCAR, and I'm not a NASCAR guy because my IQ is above 100. <laughs> it's a joke. It's a joke. I asked Pastor Caleb, do you know anything about NASCAR? He said, not a thing. I said, you're, you're no redneck. He said, hallelujah. <laughs> but in NASCAR, you know, I know enough to know they have to pit. Every couple hundred miles, they have to pit. Their crew calls them in. They got to change tires. They got to refuel. And I'm sure, I don't know, I don't watch it. My mother-in-law is a big NASCAR fan. But I'm sure there's times they don't want to pit because I can get one or two more laps. But if they don't pit, and have new tires put on, even though they're going to watch all your competition blow past you. If they, they can go longer on those tires, but they risk blowing out. They can go longer on that gas, but what happens if you run out on the far side of the track? So the crew watches all of this and says it's time to pit, and they've got to obey that, pull in, and even though you're in the lead car, and now here goes 70 cars, roam, 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 roam. It's your crew investing in you so you can make the next checkpoint. So here I am at Bob Evans, and my friend's doing his thing, and I'm like, Ugh. But the Lord is investing in me. But that was the word I could feel from the Lord. I'm investing in you again so that you finish your race. And that just makes me say, all right, Lord, what, you know, what else can I bring up to my friend's grace? You know, if his grace was to fix bunions, I'd show him my bunions. If his grace was to fix teeth, I would say, ah, and as it is, his grace is for another area. And that may help us. We got to see correction in our life as God investing in our completion. If you see correction as an assault, you are yet immature. You cannot see correction as a personal assault. You have to see correction, even from a pagan boss, as an investment in a new set of tires so you can go another hundred miles. If you, if you get defensive and shut down, the Spirit of God will leave you alone until he circles back around and says, are you mature enough now? So anyway, the seeing behind the scenes, pastors are real. We have real problems, and we need real help too. And we're seeing this with Timothy, the young mama's boy. And we're, we saw in 1 Timothy how he needed so much encouragement. We saw on the video I recorded that he needed this famous exhortation, God has not given us a spirit of fear. And in chapter 1, it says three times, don't be ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Don't be ashamed, because that's a real temptation. He never has to tell Titus, don't be ashamed. Titus is like a rhinoceros. Just give me something to run over. You know, a, a, a group of birds is called a flock, but a group of rhinos is called a crash. And I think that's the coolest thing ever. My favorite African animal is a rhino. That's why we have a painting of one over here that I got in Kenya. I've been on so many safaris. Anytime we go, Scudder says, you want to go see go safari? I said, Scudder, I never need to see another rhino the rest of my, or hippo or whatever. But I was in Kenya and had the opportunity to go see the white rhinos. And I said, I'll do that. Because to see rhinos in the wild with these majestic long horns, that's my animal. Also, they're called a crash. <laughs> and they're aggressive. We see with Timothy behind the scenes of ministry, and you have to understand this is tip of the spear, cutting edge, what God is doing in the earth using broken people, using mama boys. And that would, should encourage some of you because some of you are still mama's boys. But if God can use Timothy, who has no dad in the picture to speak of, 
then he can use us. But at the same time, he's also being corrected in private through these epistles. And the Lord saw fit to give them to us so that we can see what goes on behind the scenes. We also looked at in 1 Timothy and at the end of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, there are other ministers who crashed and burned. And here you see about uh, Ones- uh, not Onesiphorus, but uh, Phygelus and Hermogenes. These guys betrayed Paul. They failed. We saw in the last one, Hymenius and Philetus, or Hymenius and Alexander. They were preaching buddies with Paul, and they failed. And it's scary when Paul is calling out failed early church apostles, failed early church ministers. I mean, you had to be cutting edge to be running with Paul. And in two chapters, two epistles, we have the names of four failures. The church isn't even 30 years old, and folks are already failing. How much grace and anointing was available to the early church to endure persecution of the Jews and the Romans, and we've already got the names of four ministers who quickly arose to the level of Paul and are known by Paul and ministered with Paul, and they're already burning out Paul got saved, they estimate, about 45 A.D. These, this epistle is written in about 65. So within 20 years, these guys have already burned out. And I can tell you, I've only been pastoring 16 years, though I've been part of the kingdom, the Spirit-filled movement, since 96. So that's 27 years. I've seen preachers come and go. Even pastoring in this town, I've seen preachers come and go, burn out, fail out, drink out, fornicate out. And it it causes us to walk very circumspectly. And if any man thinks he stand, let him take heed, lest he fall. So this brings us to chapter 2, verse 1. And looking at how uh, Phygelus and Hermogenes had had turned away. One of the most powerful things I think I said on that video, the pre-recorded message, was in chapter uh, 1, verse 15. Paul says, all that are in Asia have turned away from me. Every one of his churches, Paul is saying, has turned away from me. How do you go from being the man of God, the apostle of grace, starting more churches according to the New Testament than anybody we have record of, and that whole region of your ministry just rejects you? How how much of a failure do you feel like? I was hanging out with a bunch of preachers this week, and One of my pastor friends was talking about his father in the faith who's different, and there's a lot of fathers in the faith, but he said, you know, when we first started, my father in the faith had 18 sons, and now we're down to three. Because either they quit ministry, send out a ministry, or they got so big they didn't need my dad. And I knew the three that were remaining because I'm friends with them, and then then I know the father in the faith. He's a great man of God, and what what happened to the other 15 dinglings? You wouldn't be anything without the man of God who built you up. But if it happened to Jesus, and if it happened to Paul, it'll happen in this day and age too. So this is why, because all of Asia has turned away, this is why chapter 2, verse 1 says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're keeping track, and hopefully you can see the big picture, multiple times so far now in seven chapters of letters to Paul or to Timothy, Paul is worried about Timothy quitting. Hopefully you picked that up in 1 Timothy, and now we're seeing that again. There's this exhortation, because he knows the boy's tendency. 
to be timid, to be cowardly, to quit. So you see a lot of this encouragement. Press on. Don't quit. We're not of those that draw back. That's Hebrews, but this heart is there. Uh, uh, be strong, thou, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. There's this exhortation. Don't draw back. Why? Why is he saying it? Because he just mentioned two of his preaching buddies that did, on top of a whole region that did. How, what will Paul do if his best and dearest son does the same thing? So you don't not that Paul's in fear. He's inspired by the Holy Ghost here, but you hear the reality in Paul's tone. If they fell away, you can fall away. Don't fall away. I also want to kind of put this twist out there. I don't think it's a twist. We'll explain it. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, the Amplified defines grace as God's unmerited favor, and I'm coming more and more to reject that unmerited favor. But the Bible says he gives grace to who? And how do we get humble? Humble your... So it's something you do. And when you humble yourself, he gives what to you? Therefore, it is merited. Because the kingdom is a meritocracy. Not everybody has the grace of God on their life. Not everybody has the favor of God on their life. So when he's saying... Be strong in the grace. You can only be strong if you have it. And how do you obtain it? But through humility, saying, oh, God, help me. Oh, God, have mercy on me. Anytime you start to get frustrated in an area of your life, it's pretty indicative that you've dried up the grace of God there. So wherever you're frustrated, that's where you need to go back and say, God, help me. God, speak to me. Lord, I'm irritated with my wife. I'm irritated with my husband. I'm irritated with my kids. This job's bugging me. Frustration is a warning light that you're out of the grace of God and into works or pride. So then you can re-earn, for lack of a better term, if you're a Calvinist, your head just exploded. But you can re-merit. He gives grace to the humble, but what does he do to the proud? So if you don't want to be resisted, stop being prideful and humble yourself. It's pretty easy. It's a heart decision. So wherever you're frustrated, that's where you just stop and say, Lord, I'm frustrated. Have mercy on me. Help me. Just by saying, help me, that's humility, and there comes grace to help. So I like to define grace, Dr. Barclay's definition, heaven's help. And he gives help to the humble, just like you and I do. We help those, not that help themselves, we help those that ask for it through humility. So he says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses. This is an important statement because he's saying, the things you've heard me tell groups of people. That's going to be the, the emphasis of Paul's teaching ministry. Not necessarily the things I shared with you in private. Not necessarily the things you heard me say on a one-off. But the things you hear me say over and over again around everybody. That's the thrust of Paul's ministry. And I've taught you guys that. You know, anything I say once or twice, take it or leave it. But if it becomes something we're dealing with over and over and over again, I know very well how to grieve the Spirit of God, and I know when I'm doing it and when I haven't done it. And if I'm saying it over and over again, you would be wise to listen because I got 10,000 things to teach. But if I'm harping on the same thing, your heart should not be so stupid and upper Cumberland to say, well, that's just Pastor Chris harping on that again. Honey, I got 10,000 other things to teach you. I'd rather not harp on it, but quit being retarded. Why are you harping on it? Because your room's still a mess. All you ever do is want my room cleaned up. Yeah, because you never clean your room up. Well, I want to do something else. So do I. So clean your room up and let's move on. <laughs> the things that you've heard me say among many witnesses, these are the things you commit thou to faithful men. 
And not, not necessarily the private things of Paul's frustration. Some of those things you keep private, but the things Paul's saying in front of many witnesses, big groups of people, as Timothy would travel with Paul and see him preach over and over again, those are the messages you pick up. Whether it's the message of faith with Brother Hagen, the message of authority with Lester Sumrall, the message of excellence and helps with Dr. Barclay, the things you're hearing them say over and over again, that's the heart of their ministry. That's what you commit to church members. No? Oh, Sunday morning, folks. Oh, your favorite disciple. Faithful. Uh, there's a special definition. This is pistos, but when it's in used in this application, this means someone who can be relied upon. Uh, of persons who show themselves faithful in the transaction of business, the transaction of execution of commands, or the discharge of official duty. Someone who has shown themselves faithful and dependable. As pastors and even as disciple makers, we don't waste our time on anybody. Not just anybody. And even as a disciple maker, and all of you should be making a disciple somewhere, I, pardon the lame example, but it, the kingdom is a lot like the martial arts, at least the martial arts I did. You could train anybody ranked beneath you and bring them up to your level. If I was a yellow belt, I could train white belts to come up to yellow stripe and then yellow, orange stripe, orange, etc. In the kingdom, you can be born again a week and start making a disciple. Yeah, like Nathan said, come and see a man that told me all I ever did. Well, Jesus didn't tell you all you ever did. He just said, I saw you sitting under a tree. <laughs> that man was easily impressed. <laughs> he, he's, he is like met Jesus for two minutes. Like, I got to go get some more people. Like, Come meet this man. That'll tell you all you ever did. I don't know if I want to meet this kind of guy. <laughs> but he did say, of whom there is no guile. There's no guile in you, Nathan. Yeah, I just invited everybody. And so here we are. You ought to be able to make a disciple, but you'll learn very quickly in disciple making. There are people you have to quit wasting time on because they're not getting it. And you got other people you can be investing in. And so there are people you turn away from discipleship. And hopefully in that rejection, it provokes them to pay attention and be more appreciative. And there are times where you're like, There's just, this is a dead end. What am I doing? And then there's times you look at folks and you kind of realize they're never going to get it. I thought I could make a Paul out of them. I'm not even sure I can make a Nicodemus out of them. Uh, maybe they're a Zacchaeus. They're just a wee little man. Then sometimes you realize this just may be a Judas. Paul told Timothy, the things I've given you, the things that are the essence of my ministry as an apostle, you don't just give to anybody. They have to earn it. Oh, there's that meritocracy again, and the Calvinist head just popped a second time. If you're unfaithful, you don't deserve it. If you're unfaithful, you don't get to be taught these things that Timothy had to give. But you could change that by becoming faithful. Unless, of course, God predestined you to be faithless. In which case, this is a do-loop of retardation. <laughs> Miss Kathy Pittman said, Chris, baby, she calls me baby, I don't think you preach without using the word retard. I said, you should pastor where I pastor, Miss Kathy. <laughs> Faithful men who shall be able to take notes and brag about what they've learned. No, they're given it so they can teach it others so that Paul's gospel, as he calls it here in a couple of verses, can go forth. We know it's the gospel of Christ, but Paul did call it my gospel. Verse 3, thou therefore endure hardness. Now, he never had to tell Titus that, but here he is telling the mama's boy, endure hardness. 
This is the evangelist saying, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready. For what? Hell. <laughs> endure hardness. You got to tell a mama's boy to endure hardness because everybody else who's hard knows how to do it. You got to tell the new person, the delicate person, the newbie, this isn't going to be easy. Uh, Dr. Barclay tells the story that when he first met Lester Sumrall, Dr. Barclay was, it sounds like he's like in his mid to late 20s. He hasn't been long out of Vietnam or retired from the Marine Corps. And he gets to meet the famous Lester Sumrall. And Lester Sumrall had heard stories of this young sergeant who was now a preacher. And he said, I heard you were a decorated combat war veteran. He said, yes, sir. He said, well, son, you haven't faced an enemy till you face a backstabbing Pentecostal. Dr. Barclay said, I had no idea how right he would be. He said, you face no enemy till you face the wrath of God's people. That's the testimony of yins, the body of Christ. For those who need the interpretation, you guys, you all, that. <laughs> Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to watch this. There's going to be three allegories used here. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that wars entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. You have been chosen, believer, to be a soldier. You haven't been chosen to be a mama's boy. You haven't been chosen to be a delicate Instagram influencer. You haven't been chosen to be a gym bro. You've been chosen to be a soldier for Christ. Verse 5, and if also, if a man also strive for masteries, that is, athletics, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. Third allegory, verse 6, the husbandman, that is, the farmer that labors must be first partaker of the fruits. Verse 7, consider what I say, and the Lord give the understanding in all things. So this is pretty powerful. We should we could and maybe we will stop and take the rest of the message on these three allegories because Paul throws it out there and then he says, and may God tell you what I just told you. Because these three things are very critical. Three allegories right here that describe our walk with God. Number one, we're soldiers. Number two, we're Olympians. Number three, we're farmers. He uses all three of them back to back to back and all three of them carry uh, an expectation carry a responsibility, but they also carry a reward. And that's why Paul writes it, but for time's sake, one of my favorite quotes from literature is Tom Sawyer, excuse me, Tom Sawyer, um, Mark Twain. He famously said in a letter, if I had more time, I would have written you a shorter letter. And that's the rule of literary. That's the rule of writing. When you have more time, you can say more with less. When you don't know what you're doing, it takes 90 pages. When you're socially awkward, you just voice the text. <laughs> he said, he throws these three allegories out and then basically says, may the Lord give you understanding in these things. What things? The three allegories he just shared. So I'll give you some understanding in those three things. So we have these two uh, verses, three and four, back to back. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Well, what this obviously is, is an allegory of being in the military. We know that this kingdom is a spiritual war. And yet we have three here because they balance us. It's not just always war, but it isn't always just walking through the field looking for some grain. And it isn't always running a race. 
it's all three of these in rotation. Now, these are all three aggressive, and they're all very three hard work, but this is written to the pastor. But you could come up and be more than a mediocre Christian by saying, let me be as diligent and fervent and battle-hardened as a preacher. There really aren't any passive, sweet allegories for the full-time minister. But this is a high standard, so whoever has ears to hear, let them hear it. This inference, this military infers, the military allegory infers, there's a battle at hand. And he tells us that the good soldier can endure. So what if you don't endure? If you can't endure hardness, you're not a good soldier. If you can't endure hardness, you're a bad soldier. You're still a soldier, you're just not a good one. We have rules of engagement, and if you abandon post, if you, what's it called, AWOL, what is it when you run out of your foxhole and just desertion. You can be shot in the back for that. That's rules of military engagement today. Is that correct? You can accidentally be shot. Now, one of the stupidest things Obama ever did was negotiate for Bergdahl's release when that moron abandoned his troops in Afghanistan and fled to the Taliban. Let him die in those caves. Why would you negotiate with Muslims? Well, maybe because you are one for one. <laughs> He might be your favorite color. He is half white, but he's full Muslim. And I'm, I don't think he was a bad president because he's half black. He was raised by a white woman. I think he's a bad president because his policies were horrible. So they should have, his platoon should have shot him. But if you're a good soldier, you can endure. So this verse just starts off real simple. It doesn't start off sweet, simple. It's hard. Endure and you'll be good, not excellent just good. Remember, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. Not even excellent name, just a good name. Uh, so just a good soldier can endure hardness. How many Christians quit because the preaching gets a little rough? How many Christians quit because there's an expectation of another prayer meeting? How many Christians quit because the persecution rants? How many Christians quit because, you know, I just want an easier church? Well, then go to hell because the next church I'm not telling you to go to hell. You will go to hell. The next church, you will justify it's too hard. So you'll just keep taking the step down, 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 down until you find the lowest church in town, and then you'll be justified in going there because at least you have your Sunday nights and your Sunday mornings and your Wednesdays free again. We just stream and drink coffee. It's like we're really there. No, like streaming church is like watching Martha Stewart or Julia Child. You're watching everybody else enjoy it. You're just listening. You're not participating. It's like watching the Home Food Network. You're not really there putting calories in your body. You're just participating at home. All right. Verse 4, no man that wars entangles himself. This is a term that talks about a purposed preoccupation. No man that wars, and this is a charge to us. We're, we're at a spiritual war, and you can't war if you're preoccupied with other things. No man that wars entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him, and I underline this in my Bible, him who has chosen him to be a soldier. You and I have been chosen. We owe it to our God who saw fit to draft us into his army to do everything we can to march for him and to war for him, and he'll never leave us nor forsake us. i tell you a pretty cool story. Um, Bud Bud had a dream a couple weeks ago, months, maybe a month or two ago, 
And I knew it was God because every time he told it, he told it about 95% the same. It was a five-year-old little mind. He was so excited to tell me when I woke up in the morning, Daddy, I had a dream. I said, you did? He said, yeah. And he, I said, well, what was the dream, son? And he said, I was playing in my room, not praying, but playing, you know. And he said, the Daryls were in there, and this giant dinosaur monster came to our house and bit off the side of the house where my room is. He said, so I look up, and there's this giant monster, and he's growling, and I tell the Daryls, Daryls, get back. <laughs> it's all boy, you know. Get back. He said, and I got my Nerf done. <laughs> he said, I'm going to fight this uh, dinosaur monster. He said, and then I heard God speak. And God said, put down that gun. So I put the gun down and then God put this big sword in my hands and it was so heavy. I said, and what'd you do? He said, and I fought the monster with it. <laughs> I'm like, that sounds like God. <laughs> You're not smart enough to put all that allegory together and figure it. So even the boy recognized it. We got a war to fight. Nerf bullets ain't going to cut it. Social media posting don't cut it. Even my boy recognized that call. I got to fight dragons and nerf bullets don't cut it. And God's still giving out swords. And you'd think he'd advance to like an MP5 or something by now. Still just handing out swords, you know. Like still running chariots up in heaven. No, no EV cars. Just chariots. Still writing on scrolls. No digital pads or tablets. Just Nothing's evolved up there. It's just eternal. Chariots and swords and armor and bows and arrows and, yeah, no tactical nukes. I don't know. I don't get it, but it is what it is. No man that wars entangles himself, that is a preoccupation with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. So be encouraged to know that God has chosen you. But at the same time, if you realize you have the armor of God, that also kind of lets you know you're going to have to fight. <laughs> we should also be circumspectly evaluating our lives to see where we're preoccupied and not able to do what God's called us to do. One of my preacher friends uh, within the last year or so, he really, he, he's always kind of been into agriculture and uh, he was sharing with me because preachers who are real preachers are honest with each other. We honestly like telling where we're getting our tail chewed by God and where we're stupid. And it's just a time to decompress and be real. So Six or eight months ago, he was telling me, he said, uh, I sold all my cows. I said, you did? I thought you really enjoyed it. He said, I love it. He said, but honestly, he said, more and more the cows were reproducing. And, and he said, and I wasn't, it wasn't just a hobby anymore. It was becoming a full-time job. And he said, I was spending more time out there than I was at the church and preparing. And, and he's got a great church. They take care of him, so he's not bivocational. But this cow thing was becoming his second job. He said, one of the old deacons in my church came up to me and said, pastor, and this guy's a little bit older than me. I said, yes, sir. He said, I noticed you're getting more cows. Yes, sir. He said, can I ask you a question, pastor? Yes, sir. Did God call you to be a shepherd or a rancher? And I said, and, and what'd you do? He said, and the cows are for sale. And so is the property. And he made a killing on all of it. But he said it just crept in. It just crept in. They just, I like it. It was a hobby, and it just consumed everything. And it took a, a, a respectful older deacon to call him out on it. Has God called you to be a shepherd, sir, or a rancher? He had become preoccupied and was no longer able to focus his devotions on war. 
Verse 5, so he changes up. Now we talk about, let me back up, let me say this. So the allegory is military, the inference is battle, and the requirement, because each of these three allegories bases or, or places a requirement on us, and this is a focused devotion. If we look at the military allegory, it requires a focused devotion on the mission. You know, Pastor Caleb told me when they were deployed, he was deployed in Afghanistan for 10 months, nine months, and they told Miss Tiffany, if anything bad happens, do not contact your husband. Is that right? Because we need him mission focused. If the boys die, mama dies, you can't contact your husband. That's some seriousness. We fall apart over social media posts. We can't even come to church because we're so discombobulated over somebody we don't even like, not liking something we like. I mean, really. I, I will say again, social media is the adult middle school of the Western Hemisphere. Because our culture knows nothing about self-control. So everything we do, we do in excess. That's the American spirit. It's destroying us. So there's this requirement of focused devotion. Know what God's called you to do and don't get out of your lane. Again, this is behind the scenes of ministry, so we're seeing what it takes. I, I do have a real problem with preachers who live on their motorcycles. I'm not against, I am a little bit, just because I have friends that have hurt themselves, and Pastor Jerry was killed on a motorcycle. You know, have your hobbies, but when you're on the golf course every day or you're riding motorcycles every day, aren't you called to care for God's people? I mean, I get it. You need a day or two off. I totally get it. But six days on a motorcycle, six days on the greens or links, really? I cave. I don't cave six days a week. I used to cave once a week. That's kind of dried up for right now. You got to be focused on what God's called you to do. Then he mixes up this story, uh, the allegory and says, also, if a man strive for masteries, that is, that is an athletic competition. He is insinuating the Olympic Games, which were established at the time. Not like we know today, but there were the games, the competitions. He, he uses this example because Timothy would have well known it. If you're striving for the athletic masteries, you only get a crown if you obeyed laws. So now he invokes, invokes obedience to the law of God and also uh, the discipline that is required. He only strives for masteries. That is, you, you have to be disciplined. He invokes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20, uh, 25, 26, 27. That you, number one, you got to be disciplined. So the inference here is the requirement of discipline and obedience to the laws of God. Because you can cheat and grow a big church, but there won't be a reward for it. You can cheat. You can be a loosey-goosey preacher, draw all the lukewarm cowards in town, all the beer-drinking, porn-watching, womanizing pagans in town. Great, but all you have is a cesspool. There's no reward for that. So you have to strive lawfully. But we see that this also infers there is a race. Whereas the first allegory is there's a battle, this allegory is there's a race to run. And we know that. That's a biblical example from the New Testament. Let us run our race. And it requires diligence, or excuse me, discipline and law abiding or obedience to the laws of God. And then that brings us to the third one, which is the husbandman, or we would say agriculture. The agriculturer or the farmer that labors must be first partaker of the fruits, or he gets to eat the fruit first. Now, what that tells us is uh, the allegory is farming, the inference is fruit production, and the requirement is patient anticipation. Patient anticipation. So you have three allegories there. But now the, the struggle, as, as we say today, the struggle is real. <laughs> War is work. The Olympics are work. Farming is 
is work. War is 24-7. When you deploy, you wake up and go to bed thinking combat. That's where PTSD has its origins. You're such on um, hyper-awareness. It's a psychological term. You are hyper-aware because your life is at stake. You go to bed thinking about it, hoping you wake up getting to think about it. Same with the Olympics. We understand the Olympics. When they go off to Colorado Springs, Colorado, which is where the U.S. Olympic training facility is for a lot of our stuff, they eat, sleep, and drink Olympics. When we were doing gymnastics, we learned a lot about gymnastics, and I said, our kids are never getting a scholarship because we're not doing this 70 hours a week at 8. And that's what they do. 70 hours a week homeschooling to make it to the Olympics at 14. Of course, you built like a little muscle because that's all you do for 70 hours. If I did Olympics for 70 hours a week, I would look like a little muscle muffin. As it is, all I have is a little muffin. (laughs) This is is a travel muffin right here. I got to get to running again and stay off the sodium. (laughs) All of this is work. Olympics, you go to bed. And farming is around the clock. You You work till the light goes out. You get up at the crack of dawn, especially in agricultural ancient Israel, and you get at it again because if you don't bring the food in, neither do you eat. If you don't work, neither do you eat. And this is God saying, success in Christ. What happened to grace? I thought grace means we don't have to do anything. I thought heaven's help just does it all for us. There's a grace to help in war. There's a grace to help in the race. There's a grace to help in the agriculture. But here's what these three things produce, and this is the benefit of it. And maybe if you don't have this, it's because you're not doing one of these three allegories. So this is very simple allegory and principalization. War, when won, affords you peace and stability. So that's why we go to war. I like the U.S. American mantra, peace through superior firepower. Or the other example from history is to have peace, you must prepare for war. Or one of our presidents, I think it was Truman, says, walk softly and carry a big stick. Reagan said, trust but verify. And then some of our fathers said, have bigger nukes. <laughs> and even our nuclear fast attack subs, they, they serve as nothing but a deterrent. Our, our nuclear subs, that, uh, the fast attack is a different class, first strike. They sit out there for nine months. Nobody, not even the Pentagon, knows where they are. They just patrol in the Pacific off the waters of China and Russia and North Korea, and they don't know where they are, and they know that we don't know where they are, but if they ever do something stupid, we just basically wipe them off the earth with one submarine because all those portals open, they launch from deep surface-to-air continental ballistic missiles, and we just nuke them into the Stone Age and turn their coast into glass. And they know that we have them out there, and they're around the clock 24-7, and it's a deterrent. And that brings us peace. We haven't been invaded by North Korea, have we? Or Russia or China, except for the university students and the professors and the reverse engineering and the, okay, and the property purchasing in our government. I mean, other than that, we haven't been invaded by China, have we? You haven't seen racial hatred till you go to Africa and see how they feel about the Chinese. I have heard grievous talk from pastors about how they feel about the Chinese. And it makes me uncomfortable. And I'm like, oh. How about we win them for Jesus? Why? They're parasites on our continent. And that's why I like this, not my pig, not my farm, not my fight. 
And that's a whole other ball of wax right there. Olympics. This one's interesting because you look at the Olympics, and this is a true principle for the kingdom. The Olympics affords you fame, name recognition, and awards. When you win in the Olympic sport, even in these days, you had fame and glory. And there is that promise. You'll hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. You'll receive a crown. The revelation says you'll receive a palm branch, which is a symbol of victory. So there is a fame and a glory. Paul said, I beat my body daily, lest after I preach to others, I myself should be cast away. I, I want to receive the crown, the mastery. So this one affords us not just peace and, and uh, safety and security and stability. This gives us awards and fame. But see, ministry does everything. Ministry fights a battle. Ministry gives awards and fame and recognition. You, you become someone worth looking up to. You become someone who's faithful and counted worthy of more of the doctrines of Christ to be entrusted. There is a promotion that comes. You get, you get your face on spiritual Wheaties boxes. <laughs> Everybody wants to shake your hand. And then, of course, farming affords you sustenance, and through sustenance, continuance in your existence. If you don't farm, you don't eat. If you don't eat, you die. And you don't want to die. And that's why Paul says, consider what I say. And I'm sure Timothy read through that over and over again and extracted all the allegories, some of which maybe I just gave you, and probably much more in his cultural day. Consider what I say, and the Lord give the understanding in all things. And then Paul changes it up in verse 8. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. I think it's funny. Paul calls it his gospel when it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when you're really zealous and you live for something, you can call it yours. You know, I've had folks say, quit calling it your church. It's the Lord's church. Well, tell Paul to quit calling it his gospel. If I live for it, I think it's mine. <laughs> you call it your wife. Yeah, she is my wife. I pay for everything. <laughs> and when I don't do it right, I pay for everything. <laughs> See, the way I'm paying, it's mine. <laughs> Come on, quit being so legalistic. I know it's the Lord's church. I know who I answer to. But there's an ownership that comes. You're like, this, that's my church. I'm responsible for it. Those are my kids. Now, the U.S. government doesn't think they are, but I'll tell them they are my kids. Amen. Paul said, verse 9, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer. It's amazing. It's his gospel, and he suffers as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake. So Paul tells Timothy, don't, don't worry. I have to endure things too. And this is something interesting. This turns um, kind of a religious notion, though it's a true one. It gets a little legalistic sometimes. Sometimes we say, well, I'm suffering for Jesus, and that's accurate, but Paul says, I suffer for the church. And if, if you could ever get a hold of that, because sometimes even though we're born again and we believe in Jesus, he's not real to us. And I know you want to say, well, he is, and I get it, he is, but he's infinite, we're finite. How real do you think you know infinity? infinity? Even if it's truckloads, it's still nothing compared to infinity. But sometimes what's more realistic is the people you're helping. And so, yes, I serve Jesus, but there's a lot of stuff I do, and I do it for your sake. There's been many things I have suffered, even, even sitting there at breakfast with my friend, and he starts doing his, his grace thing on me and helping me sort through stuff. I realize this is going to, I'm saying in my heart, God is pit-stopping me. I'm changing tires. This is going to help my church. This is going to help me be a better minister this is going to help my wife, my kids. 
this is me becoming a better human being and I refuse to waste it by being offended. I'm doing this. Yes, Jesus is glorified, but he don't need nothing from me. He's the self-existent one. But if this helps my people, then pick away, sir. Why do I think that way? What do you see? Can you help me some more? He says, I endure all things for the elect's sake. He doesn't say for God's sake, not for Christ's sake. He says that in other places. But there's a reality that what we do, we do to help people. And we serve them as unto the Lord. But don't ever get so religious you think, well, I just do it for Jesus. Well, sometimes it's, like, it's nice to see who you're really doing it for, too. <laughs> that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. We endure things that people might be born again. And if you keep running from stuff, you may be helping people go to hell. So next time you want to take the easier route, maybe stop and think, if I take the harder route, it might help four more people. Take the easier route and help nobody. Take the hard route, help somebody more than myself. That's another reason to take the harder route. Quit taking the easy route. Quit being a coward. Quit making the easy decision. Make the hard decision. Get more of God in your life because you might help more people. And the whole reason you and I are still here is to help more people. Win them to Jesus. Have a testimony. Have some anointing. What's the last thing you got rid of to make room for more glory? And when's the last time you actually changed? Like, really, some of us, I think this word is strong. God wants you to pit stop so you don't blow out on the back side of that big loop rednecks driving circles on. <laughs> he doesn't want you to run out of gas. I, I would hate for people to get so close to the finish line, see the checkered flag and blow a tire roll it. Thankfully, there's not enough gas left because you didn't pit, so at least you don't burn. But we got to see these sufferings we endure as a reason or a cause to help more people. All right. It's a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, and that's one of the ways we die with him is we suffer. This isn't good word of faith doctrine, but it is Pauline doctrine. Word of faith doctrine says, I click my heels three times and I don't believe I receive suffering, therefore I don't have to have it. So honestly, a lot of the word of faith became word of nuts. <laughs> if It's a faithful saying, if we be dead with him, and honestly, when you die, you have no rights, and so you can endure and suffer. If we, if we uh, are dead with him, we shall also live with him. And that's not just life in eternity, but you can have the life of God now. It's got to be exhausting, always living for your dream always chasing the next buck, chasing the next trend, getting to travel, you recognize who lives on social media because they all look the same, and none of them look like Jesus, even the Christians. You know because you see them in churches, but they don't look like Jesus anymore. They look like the real people they're following. Where you peer into, that's what you follow. And I want to make sure I have life with Christ in this life, not just that which is to come. Verse 12 says, if we suffer, and again, he's having to encourage Timothy, you know, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready. If we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. Oh boy, so suffering brings about some victory. The one the wonderful thing about suffering, if you didn't know it, Romans talks about it, as does Peter, we count it all joy. Corinthians also says that when I'm weak, then am I strong. Therefore, I will gladly suffer tribulation, Paul said. What? 
No, 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 no. This is the, this is the American dream. I don't have to suffer anything. I watch TBN. I click my heels. I don't believe I receive it. That's a negative confession. No, Paul said, remember him? He actually wrote the Bible. He didn't just manipulate it. He wrote it. And he said, I will more gladly suffer tribulation than because when I'm weak, then am I strong. And when I'm weak, then the glory of God makes a tabernacle on my life. When you go through stuff, it drives you to a deeper place in prayer. And only God can bring you out of that. So why are we constantly running from something that would anoint us? Why do we run from correction when it could anoint us? Why do we run from tribulation when it could anoint us? We're telling God we don't want his power on us. I got this. I don't need your help. Let me do this. I'm smart enough. This is America. I got a degree. I got me some money. Paul says, if we suffer, we'll also reign with him. But if we deny him, he'll deny us. So just as soon as we'll live with him, just as soon as we'll reign with him, we can also be denied. And so we don't want to be anywhere near denying. Verse 13, if we believe not, yet he abides faithful. And we don't have to believe he's still going to be God. He cannot deny himself. We don't have to believe he's still God. You believing or not believing, you trusting or not trusting, doesn't change who God is. If it weren't for his covenant, his word, he could just snuff out this blue marble called earth. Nobody would know. The angels aren't going to question it. Like uh, We saw that happen once a couple thousand years ago. That didn't go well, so just, you know. See what he's going to do next. <laughs> holy, holy, holy. <laughs> Blow a trumpet. <laughs> I don't know what those earthlings did, but they had it coming. That's for sure. Verse 14 of these things, put them in remembrance. Why do you remind them? They already knew, but they forgot the Ephesians. All this stuff has already been discussed but remind them again. That's why Pastor John Osteen, the righteous one, not the other Osteen, he would say the power of pastoring is repetition. Put them in remembrance. Put them in remembrance. Put them in remembrance. Charging them before the Lord. That is a very authoritative way. I command you in the name of Jesus. That isn't, actually that's kind of, kind of downright cultish by today's standard. When I look at a believer and say, I command you in the name of Jesus, that you don't strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of hearers. This is where he begins a discussion that says, quit arguing with stupid people. He'll say this two, I think two more times, if not, definitely one more time in this, ver this chapter. Quit, no, two more times. Quit struggling with stupid people. Quit debating doctrine. Quit debating false philosophers. Don't strive. This is a command from the Lord. One of my friends Actually, you know, 10 years ago when all my preacher friends were on social media and I have the revelation of how the heart works, I'm like, you guys are going to waste a lot of time. I don't know. And one of my friends said, I'm just wasting so much time debating idiots on social media. And I said, I'll tell you that. You're not going to win that argument. They're, they've learned how to get under your sin. They stream you and they spam you. Get off social media. It doesn't matter. I have now coined a new term. If somebody slanders you or phrase, if somebody slanders you on social media, but you're not on social media, does it make a noise? No, it doesn't. It's just a bunch of retards with their thumbs just voicing the demons in their heart. Isn't it amazing somebody's opinion typed with a thumb at a gas station or at a red light or while they're pooping at the work toilet, that that could ruin your month? You'll submit under Thumpkin's retarded thumb and not under the mighty hand of God. Now you can block them. How about just get off social media and be an adult? Amen. That is something I've harped on for years, and some of you don't listen to it. And then I hear the stories in private. 
over and over and over again, you were right, destroyed my house, destroyed my home, hurt my kid, hurt my daughter, hurt my son. I'm hearing stories now from churches about how it's hurting their churches. As a pastor, when your church is all on social media, the devil knows where to find them. And all they have to do is attack your church through all those accounts. And now as a pastor, you have to redirect two or three weeks of services. What a waste of time. When I could be winning the lost or making disciples or healing marriages, now I have to put out a slander fire because I wasn't disciplined or foresighted enough to teach my church. Social media is where immature children hang out. And I told you 200 school districts have just now filed federal lawsuits against the major social media companies saying you're to blame for the rise in, in mental health issues among our children. We've been saying that 10 years. All right. Of these things, charge them, quit arguing. Profit to no, uh, words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Verse 15, study to show yourself approved or be diligent. Be diligent. The word study there in the King James means to be diligent. I've always quoted it, always thought it meant study the Bible, study the Bible, study the Bible. It's not the word study the Bible. You guys with modern translations, it'll be be diligent or be stalwart or go after it. Be diligent to show yourself approved unto God as a workman. Workmen need to be diligent. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And of course, that requires studying the word because that's how you divide the word of truth. Verse 16, here we go again. But shun profane and vain babblings. That would say quit arguing with your detractors on the internet. If a moron slanders you on social media, but you're not on social media, does it even make a noise? No. No. Profane, shun profane and vain babblings. That's in contrast to the word of truth. For they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker. That's the word for gangrene. So now arguing with detractors and trying to debate them, now we're getting into gangrene. It'll start off small and begin to eat at you. You'll start to argue with people that probably know more apologetics for the devil than you do, and they'll destroy your faith. Just walk away. Just say, listen, let me just stop you there. Jesus loves you. You need him. There is a God. You're not him. You don't even know a fraction of all there is to know on about this county. So what makes you think you know about a God? Be born again or go to hell. Have a blessed day if you can. And walk away. Quit arguing. It's a commandment. I don't understand. We as Americans have to be so right on everything. And yet Paul tells Timothy, quit arguing with people. Quit debating people. Quit, quit dabbling in vain babblings and shun these profane things because all they do is produce gangrene of the soul. Of whom is Hymenius and Philetus? Hymenius was already quoted in 1 Timothy. So now we add Philetus to it. So now we're up to five preaching buddies of Paul who have apostatized through debates and doctrines of men who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already. These were preaching buddies, and now they're going around teaching everybody resurrection's past. You missed it. Resurrection's past. You missed it. And he says, and they overthrow or uh, strip the faith of many. They defraud and deprive people of their faith. Because if you trust Hymenius and Philetus and you follow their ministry and you support their ministry, you're going to believe what they say. Well, you know, that's my apostle. That's my favorite Christian television preacher. And he's saying the resurrection's past, and I believe it now. Well, Paul didn't teach any such thing. It really is amazing how many Christians in America change their doctrine because some idiot on Christian television is teaching it now. Yes, sir. I, one of my friends... Um, 
I'm thankful for my friends. We hold each other accountable. One of my friends has a really stupid doctrine, and another one of my friends has more of a steel backbone than I do concerning our mutual friend. And he said, wait, wait, you think I believe your doctrine? And our friend with this dumb doctrine said, well, yeah. He said, I don't believe your doctrine at all. In fact, I don't even know where you got it from. And he said, listen here, friend, I have fathers of the faith, and they invested in doctrine, doctrine into me that put me where I am. And it was the same faith as Brother Hagen and Brother Sumrall and, and Norval Hayes and Oral Roberts. Why would I trade that now? I don't even know where you got this new doctrine from, but I have fathers and you don't. <laughs> and that, he said, that's why we have fathers, because they keep us lined up till we're mature enough. And all, everybody we're dealing with has churches that are well-established. And they keep us lined up until God can trust us to stand on our own. Amen. 20 years later, 30 years later. Two of these preaching buddies all of a sudden are teaching some weird heresy. The resurrection's past. And the worst part about this doctrine, as Paul said, is that it's beginning to overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knows them that are his, and that let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So being a Christian means you get cleaner. Being a Christian means you lose sin. You walk away from it. You don't make excuses for it. When you do it, you repent. Say, Lord, I enjoyed it, but it's still sin, and I want you to know I still agree that it's sin. My flesh liked it. My mind liked it. I like giving them a piece of that my mind, I like drinking that thing, smoking that thing, looking at that thing. It's wrong, and I, I want to stay right with you, God, so have mercy on me. We depart. We haven't mastered it. We're still departing until the day you die. You're going to find something to depart. But in a great house, and we've taught on this many, many times, so here's the context now. In a great house, that would be the house of God, the local church, even preaching ministries, because he just named two dishonorable vessels, Hymenius and Philetus. In a great house, they're not only vessels of gold, of silver, but also wood and earth. This talks about socioeconomics. It talks about uh, uh, education. It talks about color, rank and file. It's all of this, but the critical part is some to honor and some to dishonor. You would much rather be a clay pot full of honor than a gold pot full of dishonor. Because what you're made of in the natural doesn't matter to God, whether you're black, white, yellow, whether you have perfect grammar, imperfect grammar, whether you speak five languages or still working on English after 35 years. What God wants is honor. And the commandment is, if a man therefore purge himself, and the implication is, I got rid of Hymenius and Philetus. I purged myself from these preaching buddies. I've heard Dr. Barclay say it. I'm not sure I can go there and preach anymore. I'm going to have to cut some people off because their doctrine began to shift too far beyond the rumble strips of orthodoxy and get into what's called heterodoxy or different beliefs. And they can only go so far until we say, look, I love you, but until you repent, we can't walk together anymore. Purge yourself from these, dis we would know the implication or the inferences of the dishonorable vessel. You shall be a vessel unto honor. You will become whatever you're running with. So be careful what you run with. I would really encourage, I'd encourage you not to watch Christian television. I would really encourage you. There's no reason to. I mean, they're not your pastor. I'm a pretty good teacher, and I teach on everything. We got Dr. Barclay to listen to. Go find some Brother Hagen, some Brother Summerall. Find some Billy Graham classics. Why would you watch Christian television? It's a weird cesspool. Purge yourself and become a vessel of honor. 
You, you have no idea these minutes, well, not all of them, but honestly, I don't even know why some folks are still on Christian television, the good ones, because I wouldn't want to be guilty by association. I want to be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and profitable for the master's use, meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work, ready for every good work. The way you get ready is to run with people better than you. The way you get used is to run with people better than you. And that takes humility. But by now in life, you should understand to get better, you got to be around better people. And there's no, nothing to be embarrassed about. There's everybody. So there's somebody in all of our lives that's better than us. That's something we want to be good at. So just get around them. If you want to learn how to shoot a gun, get around somebody who's good with guns. If you want to learn how to change oil, get around somebody who can change oil. Don't be afraid of what you think you lack because somebody around you has it and wants to help you with it. If you don't come, let's say, if you don't come to me for help, my grace is wasted. If I don't go to you for help, your grace is wasted. Why, why do we have this pride about, well, I, I just am so embarrassed. Of what? Be embarrassed of nothing but remaining ignorant. So wherever your weakness is, there's somebody God has put in your life that can help you with it. Get around them and be prepared for every good work. One of Pastor Vaughn's greatest failures was that he took pride in his ignorance and he refused to shore it up. And God will wink at your ignorance for a season and then he's going to deal with you. Fix it. Educate yourself. You and I can't say today, I don't know where to begin. The Lord will say, Google, YouTube. You, there's a tutorial for everything on YouTube. And the one with 7 million views is probably the one that's a little accurate. So how do you change oil? Just Google it, YouTube it. This is how you change oil. And they'll help you change oil. I don't know why we would want to stay stupid. Why would we want to stay ignorant? You don't have to be that way. You can fix any deficiency in your life and be prepared for the good work of God. Verse 22. Let's try to see if we can finish this tonight. Flee also youthful lust. My revelation on this is from Pastor Vaughn. Youthful lust isn't just sexual. Youthful lust, we say it this way. What is the one thing all young people desire? Acceptance. And that manifests a thousand different ways. It can be the young girl having sex because she doesn't want to be rejected by her first boyfriend. It could be the 55-year-old preacher getting a little ear pierced so he can look like his bros on social media. I'm like, if you're 55, look 55. Carry yourself like, why are you trying to hang out with a 22-year-old? To me, that's weird. I look at 22-year-olds and I love them. I think, y'all are dumb. Why would I want to be like anything you represent? I don't know why Pastor Vaughn didn't just kill all of us in 97 and 98. It really, that was, that's the mercy gift of a pastor. A special needs sheep, you know, between like 17 and 30, just all special needs sheep. <laughs> the special, they don't bah, they're like, la la la. <laughs> la 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 la. No, sheep go bah, la 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 la. <laughs> so when you got a 55 year old preacher in a skin tight shirt, Skin-tight jeans and a little ear stud, that's youthful lust. When he's got to work out and then show off his workout, that's lust and youthful lust. When he's got to show his wife in her swimsuit, that's lust and youthful lust. I was just talking with some preacher friends, and uh, actually Pastor Fatmir was telling us uh, the Bible school he's affiliated with, that we were once affiliated with, sent him a missionary from the school's affiliation. And he said, the dude was pompous, 
just was not in touch with where the people of God are, which means you don't know the Holy Ghost. A good preacher can go into any church anywhere in the world and with an interpreter find the will of God and deliver the message from the Word because the Word is transcendent. But he came in doing his stupid shtick, and he said, and then I guess the people started following him because, you know, he's from the Bible school and he's associated. And he said, and then we saw pictures of his wife in Mexico in a thong bikini. Blah. Why do you post that of your wife? And she doesn't have a problem with it for all your church members. Now his church knows what their first lady looks like in a string bikini. That's not just youthful lust. That's just raw lust. So I wonder how much porn is in your marriage. Because porn in your marriage desensitizes you to that level of stupidity. I mean, what you do with your marriage, be blessed in it, but keep it in the bedroom not on the beach at Cabo San Lucas so that every guy there can check out your wife and then every one of your church members knows what she looks like in a thong. It's disgusting. And that man has an unclean spirit and shouldn't even be in the pulpit. He needs to be in the deliverance line and let our children's church cast the devil out of them. Flee also youthful us. Basically get the victory over insecurity and the desire for acceptance that's unreasonable. Be accepted in Christ. Follow righteousness. Faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Follow people who have pure hearts. Follow after those who have a pure heart because they are the ones who will teach you how to find righteousness and faith and the love of God and the peace of God. Foolish and unlearned questions. There it is the third time. Foolish and unlearned questions avoid. Quit talking to your detractors. If there's a genuine heart, sure. But if they're just detracting and just foolish and unlearned, there is such thing as a stupid question. This verse says so. Foolish and unlearned. Give you the modern translation, stupid and retarded questions. Avoid. (laughs) Knowing that they do gender strifes. They produce more doubt, unbelief, and fighting. And the servant of the Lord must not strive. So that's how you can tell a servant from a true servant. A false servant always wants to fight. A false servant has to be right in every debate. One of the reasons we have such a good group of pastors in this town is we see doctrine different, and we don't even care. We have the foundational basics the same. We tease each other on our doctrinal differences. They tease me about being a Pentecostal and a tongue talker. I tease them about worshiping at the altar of the SBC. It's mutual teasing and ragging, and it's fun because in the end of the day, they'll send people to me, and I'll send people to them, and we know that we can depend on each other. We don't debate this stuff. I had an awesome ride with two Baptist brothers, and we talked about the doctrine of tongues for about 150 miles, and I laid out the doctrine. I thought it was immaculate. I really, I was like, this is the best I've ever taught it. That's impressive. I'm like, man, look at that. And then my Baptist brother driving said, huh, I don't believe any of that. I'm like, I just like gave you 90 verses from Isaiah to Jude. How can you not believe any of that? The other Baptist brother's like, well, that's something to think about. But the other brother's like, I don't believe any of that. But we didn't fight. We didn't pull over and, you know, start cussing and spitting. And they didn't try to convert me. I didn't try to convert them. We just, all right, cool. We can talk it, have fun with it and go on. Win people to Jesus and preach the gospel. Servants don't strive, but we're gentle. And and the word strive there is a unique word. It does mean a war of words. Quit debating on the internet. Quit debating. If the pastors would read the pastoral epistles, they wouldn't have a presence on social media to debate. 
because you have to violate three, four verses in this chapter alone to get on there and argue with people who you're not going to convince anyway. If someone's really hungry, they'll come to your church and say, have you got any material on this? But what kind of goofball in dirty underwear sits on his keyboard and wants to troll a preacher? And then what kind of doofus preacher bites on that? Don't you know? Huh? That's good preaching, isn't it? Uh, why? You got nothing better to do? Like, yeah, let me ask this guy. He's probably 400 pounds overweight. You just got done playing Minecraft. Let me answer him. He's a gamer living in his basement, hopped up on Red Bulls and Monsters. Yeah, this is a guy who can win to Christ with that tone of voice in his texting. We must be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient. Why? Because some of God's sheep don't buy by that. <laughs> in meekness, instructing, <laughs> instructing those that oppose themselves. Now, the word instructing is a polite way. The word is actually chastise. Look it up in the Greek. It's, it's, this is the only place it's translated instruct. Every other place it's chastise. In meekness, you correct people. But here, those that oppose themselves, because that's what love does. Now, coming back to my changing your tires, some people don't want their tires changed. They think they know everything. And maybe they get upset because the, the rivet gun is a little rough for them. Well, sweetie, we don't have time to be gentle. Like, we're going to lose this race. You can't, you can't take lug nuts off softly. Sometimes people are just so dumb, you need that ratchet gun. They change tires in what? Where's Cade? How, many, how fast can they change tires in NASCAR? Three or four seconds, a tire change. It's insane. They rock it up, and they're off and going. If we could just do it fast and loud, get on with it. Otherwise, like, How's Holly doing, Pastor Will? We almost got her in the first grade. <laughs> Why? Well, she's sensitive to harsh talk. She's, I'm just picking on her. She, you know, you have to be really gentle. You guys are going to lose. They're going to shut the lights off at the stadium, at the race, <laughs> before we get one lug off because she's that sensitive. Instruct, chastise those that oppose themselves. Come and say, you're going to kill yourself. You're going to ruin your marriage. You're going to squander your destiny. Stop it. Chastise those that oppose themselves, if God perhaps, because perhaps not. If you've ever been rebuked and rejected it, you lost the opportunity to repent. If you've ever been rebuked and rejected it, you lost the opportunity to repent. And I, that was very mind, I was mindful of Bob Evans when my friend starts talking to me about some stuff. I realized here's an opportunity. I'm not going to waste it. Here's an opportunity. This is the grace of God. I'm smart enough. I'm sensitive. Here comes God is making this pass around the mountain again. Here's another opportunity to get stuff out of my past. I'm not going to waste it just because pride. But if you can't take a correction, if you can't take a rebuke, you're, why would God give you the opportunity to repent? Correct them if perhaps God will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And the reason we reject correction is because we fail to see it as truth. So now we've exalted our truth, that's a modern woke thing, over the truth of God's word or the correction from a boss or the correction from a pastor or an elder or a spouse. 
You got to even be able to receive correction from a child if it's out of the mouth of babes. Now, obviously, you don't let your kids steer your house, but some, we've all, all of us parents have been corrected by our child, and we realize that was the voice of God. And you got to be sensitive enough to recognize the donkey's talking. Now, we're not letting the donkey steer the family, but the donkey just spoke, the child just spoke, and out of the mouth of babes, I'm being chewed out. Verse 26, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil. So look at this process. If you can't receive chastisement or correction, you're not going to have opportunity to repent so that you might acknowledge the truth. And if you can't acknowledge the truth, you won't recover yourself from the snare of the enemy. Well, why don't you just cut me free, Pastor? If it's a snare, you just cut me free. That's not how this verse is setting it up to work. I rebuke, you take heed, you stop what you're doing, and when you stop what you're doing, you can actually back up on that snare. If you know it's like a new snare, the more you kick against it, the tighter it pulls. You back off and acknowledge the truth. You can just step right out of that thing. But if you reject the correction, you're just going to keep going that same direction. Now you're just going in circles because you're tied to that snare, and this is how uh, uh, animal snares work. They usually uh, a new snare, especially a circular one. They'll just run in circles till they die or caught. Everything puts, is put back in our responsibility. And that's why we have to pray. I can receive correction from anybody. I love correction. I love having my wheels turned, change. I love an oil change. I love, Lord, let me go another 100 miles. If you don't submit to the correction, you can't repent. If you can't repent, you can't acknowledge the truth. If you can't acknowledge the truth, you stay snared by the devil who took you captive at his own will. The stakes are very high in Timothy, and he's writing to the Ephesian church or the pastor of the Ephesian church. Now, for what it's worth, this is about 65 AD. That completes that chapter. The Ephesians church didn't last much more than 100 years. By 243 AD, the Goths destroyed Ephesus. So 180 years after this letter, the whole city doesn't exist anymore. What a short-lived church. We have churches in, in this part of the country, older than Ephesus got to exist. Now, about 432, uh, at the Church of the Virgin Mary, uh, the Catholics had uh, a count, um, uh, one of their early church councils where they determined that there was a, a, a virgin birth and it was where they were working out doctrine. So 200 years after that, there is a new church back in Ephesus, but now you're under the Roman Empire, the Goths, excuse me, the Roman Catholic, the Catholic Empire, not the Romans because the Goths destroyed them, the Visigoths. So you're talking about the church at Ephesus that had an epistle to them and then a micro epistle in Revelation and then two epistles to Timothy, that church lasted less than 180 years. And I was actually reading Encyclopedia Britannica and they made the, I think it was, no, no, it was a, it was a British history, whatever. They made the observation, the downfall of Christianity brought about the destruction of Ephesus. They made that observation. As Christianity plummeted, it allowed the Goths to come in and ransack them. And, now, and, all, and honestly, all the history I've read trying to find out what happened to the Ephesians church, it says after the Goths struck, their history is shrouded for the archaeologists to still discover. We don't even know what happened. There's just ruins there. But we have a church that has all this letterage from God Because if you don't do it, it benefits you nothing. All right, so we're working through Timothy, showing you behind the scenes of ministry, and hopefully God's speaking to you as well. Amen.